This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and of course on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, yet another by-elections on the cards as a corrupt MP kicked out by the Tories faces suspension. In a Talk TV exclusive, we hear from a pro-Palestine protester who thinks the Hamas attack was inevitable and the father of a soldier killed in that terror attack as well. Plus, the final episode of The Crown has arrived. Who cares, you might hear me say. In fact, you will hear me say that. But is it more tacky than regal? Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is your home of common sense. So here we are. We have almost reached the end of yet another disastrous week for the government and yet they would have us believe that they intend to stagger on attempting to run this country until next October. Personally, I just can't see that happening. On top of all the terrible shenanigans of the Rwanda vote on Tuesday, on top of the lowest popularity rating he's ever had, and just ahead of Christmas, Rishi Sunak has been handed yet another problem as yet another Tory MP is facing suspension after being busted by the Times for offering to leak confidential information and lobby ministers for cash. Scott Benton, who has already had the whip removed, could be suspended for 35 days for appearing to be corrupt and for being an MP for sale. And that could trigger yet another by-election. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister has been boasting again. Today, he discovered that England has jumped up the rankings in the maths department, having been languishing at 27th in the world back in 2009. We are now proudly 11th. Hardly anything to shout about, but this is what he's reduced to claiming credit for. Meanwhile, uh, elsewhere in the government, Lord Cameron has also been busy today. He decided it would be a great idea to have a go at extremist Israeli settlers who he accused of targeting and killing Palestinians in the West Bank. He said in a tweet that they were undermining security and stability for both Israel and Palestinians. You might think that as Foreign Secretary, that's a fair enough point to make. After all, more moderate supporters of the Palestinian cause often refer to what goes on in the West Bank as provocation for what is going on now. But he didn't stop there, and this is where he got it wrong. Cameron then declared that the UK will ban those responsible for settler violence from entering this country, all the while knowing that members of Hamas are already living here. And God knows how many more extremist terrorists are entering Britain daily on the small boats. I think it's time to get a grip, my lord. Coming up tonight, we've got a marvellous cast of characters to examine what on earth is going on in everything from migration policy, a rise in anti-Semitism and the radicalisation of young people in Britain. If you're not worried about it, you bloody well should be. We've got the latest on an amazing story from Spain where a missing 11-year-old British boy has been found alive and well six years later living in France. And I'll tell you about a creepy nightcrawler filming young women without their knowledge and posting it on TikTok. What a scumbag. 
All human life is here. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let us get it on. Rishi Sunak is the least popular he's ever been. But who would you prefer? Is there anybody out there that you'd want? Get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost the national rate. Up first, though, ex-Conservative MP Scott Benton, who was caught out offering to leak market-sensitive information for a bogus company, now faces suspension after breaching parliamentary rules. Here are some of the unbelievable excuses he gave when put under pressure. Well, we've slightly paraphrased them, to be honest. One of them is, I had no idea what the lobbying rules were, even though I'm an MP. How about this one? About that bogus company? I didn't even bother checking if the company existed. And finally, I have to admit that telling the difference between lying and telling the truth is not my particular expertise. Like saying I'm besties with Kemi, even though she can't tell the difference between me and a cream egg. I mean, I don't know why anybody would try to buy Tory MPs at this point. I mean, they're not worth much, are they? I mean, I'd offer them a couple of quid. Uh, just to leave me alone. Uh, but listen, uh, we've got a great panel tonight. Senior Economics Fellow at the IEA, Mark Littlewood joins us. Thank you very much indeed. Littlewood commentator Alice Grant uh, and writer and broadcaster Candice Holdsworth. Welcome to all of you. I mean, how much would you offer to a Tory MP, Mark, to get some information out of them that was going to be of any use to you? Yeah, quite. It's hard to work out <laughs> what use they could do for me. I don't know, really. Uh, you know, might buy them a pint in return for some gossip, I guess. I mean, they should really be paying you to give them advice. I that think that's be the way the right, round it should, That's it about the work. right way round it should be. There is one thing I would say about this. I'm not leaping to the defence of this uh, Conservative MP at all, Mike. But there's one thing that I find a bit disquieting about it. Mm. The Tory party should be able to kick him out fair and square. Yeah. His electorate should be able to kick him out fair and square. I'm a little bit worried about committees yes. having this suspension mm. power, which I think, if I'm right, if it goes for more than 10 yeah. days then it can trigger a by-election right. or all this sort of stuff. I, I'm in favour of recalling MPs that have, you know, misstepped, but that should be up to the electorate, yeah. not the judgment of some committee. Right. I can't even remember who's on that committee. So, you know, look, some MPs are wrong uns, but I want the electorate to judge yes. them, not it's some... It's a good point. I mean, this is what they went through with Boris, wasn't it? When, yeah. when he, is he going to be suspended or is he not going to be suspended? How long is he going to be suspended for? And in the end, that also did trigger a by-election. But, I mean, I find it hard to believe that it's also gone from 80... Alice, the, uh, the, the the majority that, that Tories got in 2019, just four years ago, I mean, it's now 56. Yeah. To think that they squandered an 80-seat majority when they had the whole country behind them. I remember how much Boris is beloved by the nation, how much we were so excited for a government yeah. that promised to, to deliver Brexit, which promised to be conservative. And over the years, what have we seen but just absolutely zero conservative policy, uh, policies zero concern for actually what the people want. And they basically sold us down the river to the EU. Mm, so it's it's And we seem to be on our way back yeah. up that same river uh, to try and get a bit closer to them again. I mean, Candice, this is an appalling state of affairs. I can't imagine they're going to limp on until October, can you? Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is with this guy's particular constituency, what, what is interesting about it is it's one of the red wall constituencies. Yeah. Mm. So, 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 yes. So if there is a by-election, if that does happen, I think everyone's kind of keen to see which way it will go because no one knows where the red wall's going to go. Mm. Are they going to go back to Labour, like some say, that they're sort of going to go back to tribal habits, or are they going to go for reform? What's going to happen? Yeah. That's interesting. Oh, you agree they're not going to go for the Conservatives? <laughs> whether they're going to go for well, Labour or Well, so far, no. I mean, that's what people seem to be saying, that they're not going to vote Conservative again. They were pretty angry about the ousting of Boris Johnson. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He was one of the big reasons why they went for the Conservatives. 
but they don't identify was, with Rishi Sunak. It was no. the key issue of Brexit, and yeah. Keir Starmer with his second referendum agenda, which was so prominent, you know, just a year ago, as if he's really changed. And yeah. people can see him, but I don't any think, second yeah, now, I don't think he would any great 100% for, sell us for out. Keir Starmer. But no. do you see any similarities here, uh, Mark? Because you'll remember back in, in the days when John Major thought he was going to lose the election in 92 because everyone had enough of the Tories, but he somehow managed to win. But then, in 97, people were absolutely sick to death of the Tories and they had no chance. I mean, is there a similarity here? Well, conceivably, look, I mean, things change pretty rapidly in politics, don't they? I mean, if you were to go back to the last general election, the Labour Party got its worst result yeah. in terms of seats since the 1930s. Right. Everyone's saying, well, they're a write-off now. Yeah. Now I think everybody's presuming they'll be the next government. Yeah. Keir Starmer was in trouble early doors in this part. And, right. when, and if he sort of lost a by-election, which he just clung on to, he was assumed to, to win. So, look, I mean, I, I'm only reading the tea leaves like everybody else, Mike. But, I mean, the Conservatives are a very, very long way behind and they'd have to gain an awful lot of ground in order to be competitive in the next election. But to, yeah. to what Alison Candice has said, I mean, if a Martian came down and visited Britain now, do you think they'd believe we'd had a Conservative government for the no. last 13 years? Well, I'll Taxes tell you, up, regulation I up, don't spending up. I don't know if you remember this, but it was a great cartoon that Matt did on the front page of The Telegraph when John Major... Uh, was in his period of calling everybody bastards and making sure that uh, they'd have to force him out if he wanted to go. And it was a picture of an alien meeting somebody and the guy saying, I'm sorry we haven't got one at the moment. Uh, because obviously, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, having yeah. said, take me to your leader, we, we literally, I mean, it feels like we don't have one now. It feels like this is a government, um, like I say, I mean, to, 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 to put a tweet out today claiming victory because we've moved up to 11th at mathematics in the world. You just think, is that all you've got? Is that it? Mm. You know? I expect there'll be a great deal of apathy, to be honest, in the next election, because at the moment, what choice do the British people have between a Labour and Conservative party, which are virtually following the same agendas, just one is doing it at yeah. a more slower play pace, which is the Conservatives, and Labour will speed us right onto this awful kind of social re-engineering which we've seen, and just completely anti-conservative, right. anti-Britain policies. Mm. That is such a good point because Labour is sort of seen as they're going to win without doing very much. But what is it going to be like under Labour? Yeah. Is, it, is it going to so be a big worse. improvement? <laughs> People are angry with the Conservatives on a variety of things. But what is Labour going to no. do, especially with things like immigration? I mean, yeah. can you trust them to be much more Conservative than the Conservatives are now? Yeah. No. Well, no. I believe it or not, and this may come as a shock to, to many of you, but when Blair got in... Um, People believed that when people, when when he, all these people were cheering him as he walked up Downing Street, that that was an impromptu gathering because we hadn't really had spin presented to us before. Oh. Alist Alistair Campbell was just a, a kind of a, a, a newspaper columnist who had a bit of a drink problem and, been, and was famous for for getting naked uh, in the south of France once and writing porn uh, magazine <laughs> stuff. You know, suddenly now he's the king of political spin because what we found out later was that all of those pictures that you watch. Um, I don't know how much of this you've seen from 1997. Yeah. It's all staged. They were all Labour Party apparatchiks who had all been up all night at the People's That's Palace right, Mike, yeah. snorting lines of cocaine. Um, and here they were cheering on this brand new, you know, brave new world of a young Prime Minister with young children. And it was all fake. The photo ops, you're right, yeah. were staged. But I would say a difference I can remember back to 1997, almost like it was yesterday. I can as well. Um, Sadly. I, I do think a difference then, whatever you think of Blair after he became Prime Minister and what he did in his reign, there, there did seem to be, it's hard to measure this because you can only count votes, you can't mm. count enthusiasm. Yeah. But there did seem to be a sort of excitement that this person would drop clause no, there or, really, there really or got was. rid of the left yeah. of the party and yeah. emerge to office. 
Now, I mean, going back to what Candy said, I, I mean, there just seems to be everybody shrugging their shoulders yeah. and mm. saying a plague on all, all, yeah, all, yeah. all their houses. Right. I mean, it's yeah. quite difficult to discern the difference yes. between the, right. the major parties on any major right. issue. That's well, true, I mean, it? let's talk about migration because that's the yeah. big issue right now. That's the big issue that, that lots of people don't want to talk about, uh, particularly the Labour Party, because Keir Starmer just the other day suddenly came out and said, oh, we might consider having some offshore processing centres. And everyone went... Sorry, you've never said that before. And that's going to come out of the blue. Yeah. And every time they ask him a question about it, he gives him a different answer. Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, Kistama's words are not to be trusted. But on that point about this kind of stageness of, of the Blairite era, I think what's even more sinister is the kind of, is the fakeness of their ideology. Yeah. This, like appeal to patriotism, which obviously rings you know, and resounds with the British people, mm. but then it's so empty because these people don't believe in Britain. They don't care about Britain. They don't care about our country. Well, they were remaking you know, it as they were telling us what, all to wave the flag. Yeah. They were actually reinventing the wheel exactly. and making Britain a very different place, which is what it is now. Yeah, and selling us a complete and total lie. Yeah. And, you know, Kistam is exactly the same. He is, you know, Blair part three or whatever at this point. Yeah, but so, without the charisma. And also yeah, the thing without about the Blair, charisma. Without, the thing about Blair was he did have some interesting people around him, like Prescott, whatever you might think of him, was a, was a substantial character, uh, brought the unions with him. He had Peter Mandelson, who was Jack a smart Straw. guy. Jack Straw, who was a pretty decent character. Mm -hmm. You know, they had an awful lot of people, John Reid, an awful lot of senior politicians who had been in that business for quite a long time and who had kind of been taught to be proper politicians by John Smith yep. shortly before he died. But you look at... I mean, I can't think of who the front bench of the Labour Party even is. Once you get past David Lammy and Angela Rayner. Rachel Reeves. <laughs> Rachel Reeves is dull, yeah. I'm sorry to say. And That's the job there, isn't it? To be dull if well, you're the Labour shadow chancellor? Yeah, but I mean, she's really dull. I mean, she <laughs> makes, you know, Jeremy Hunt look interesting, <laughs> you know. And then you've got, I don't know, uh, I mean, I quite like Wes Streeting. He's about the only one that appears to me to have a sort of, you know, yeah, he takes brain risks. in his head. And, he's, yeah. and he doesn't mind talking about things which will piss off the left wing of the party, yeah. yes. which I think is good. You know, but, 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 you know, which Labour Party are we getting? Because, you, you know, people say, well, of course, you know, the Tory party's completely broken up and it's all into different groups and the Labour Party's now together. Well, it isn't, because as soon as there was a vote on the ceasefire, they were all over the place, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I think what's dangerous about Labour as well is that they really do genuinely have a few total nut jobs in that party yeah. who do not represent Still. British views whatsoever. Yeah. Right. And that's much more frightening than a Conservative Party, which, OK, on the whole, may be actually very liberal and not Conservative at all, but they do still have people who are staunch conservatives and who are true Brexiteers. Yeah. You know, we have the Jacob Rees-Mogg's. We have incredible politicians mm. who have who really do care about the nation yeah. and our future. But I don't see that with Labour at all. I in fact right. see possibly a very dangerous. Yeah, what about um, Nigel Farage? Let's talk about him as well. So well, it's going to be interesting to see whether <laughs> it's big comes week. back, isn't it? It's going to be interesting to see what he does. Yeah. But look, put yourself in in the game of politics. Put yourself in the shoes of whoever the modern day Alistair Campbell is, whoever's running the Labour spin operation at the moment. The most likely thing I, you're going to do is I think it's still Mandelson. Is it still I think, Mandelson? I think he's kind of crept back in through the back door. So the most likely thing you're going to do is this, isn't it? Say nothing, do nothing. Yeah. And hope that the <laughs> problems afflicting the present mm. government, you know, every week seems to be worse than the previous yeah. one, is enough to just get you over the line. I yeah. mean, they're playing an incredibly defensive game. Mm. And it, it, it pains me, because I, I want politics to be about ideas, not yeah. just about and personalities. Principles. Personalities come in, principles and visions. And I really cannot discern major differences between what the Conservative Party do and what no. the Labour Party do. There are differences at the margin. There's differences of emphasis. But it's almost like we're back to the 1970s, not just in terms of the economy being on its knees, but in terms of having this sort of sludgy consensus 
of nobody really yeah. knowing what to do and sort of, you know, talking in word salad terms rather than addressing yeah. the problems of the nation. But I think the Labour Party's going to probably do its best to say nothing between yeah. now and polling day and hope that's enough. And they you see do this, nothing as well. But you yeah. see yeah. this with Rwanda as well because, you know, the, the issue with the ECHR and all the problems that the Conservatives are having with, with international law, if you go back to con, um, prisoners' voting rights in 2012, yeah. Labour actually worked with the Conservatives on yeah. that. And, I mean... You know, there were agreements on the policy. I know Labour don't agree with Rwanda, but it was always about um, parliamentary sovereignty. They were okay with uniting around that idea. You know, left and right said the British Parliament must be sovereign. But now, I don't think Labour's inclined to do something like that at all because it's actually serving their interests quite well. I mean, the Conservatives look like they can't deliver on anything. And it's like you say, they can just sort of sit back. But if you look to the future, if they win in an election... What are they going to do with the Rwanda policy? I mean, will they just yeah. jettison it? Well, if they've got flights in the air, right. will they keep it? Well, maybe they'll have to decide whether it's working or not. We asked people who they'd like to see as Prime Minister, so I'm going to put it all to you, that question, before I let you go, so you can have a think about it. But here's some suggestions. Douglas Murray uh, says, oh. Vinny, he's genuine and patriotic. Uh, so how about this from Frank? Douglas Murray, David Davis, Robbie Moore MP, Nigel Farage or Lee Anderson. Uh, Rock says, I'd actually like a proper Conservative MP. Um, I'd pick Farage for the never-going-to-happen option because he would sort out a few things. Um, so some Nigel and Suella would be a great combination, says Dave. Kemi or Suella Braverman, um, who have been outmanoeuvred in the leadership contest. So who would you have as Prime Minister if you could pick one? Oh, God, what a difficult question. I mean... It shouldn't I, be, though, should it? It shouldn't be, but <laughs> more straightforward. I, go, I mean, OK, I'm going to slightly duck the question because I think this goes back to the Blair era, Mike. Mm. One of Tony Blair's legacies, and not often talked about, really, is he changed the institutional structure of the United Kingdom yeah. mm. such that the bureaucracy and the quangocrats are much more in charge they than are. the elected politicians. Yeah. I don't, I'm not even confident that the Prime Minister and the government and Parliament are running the country. No. It seems to be the Doesn't Climate Change like Committee it. and these committees suspending MPs yeah. and the OBR and the civil right. servants at the Treasury. So if, if my pessimistic view there is the case, doesn't much matter, really. It's all just window no, dressing. It could it? be anyway. we change the institutional <laughs> just, structure. Just a puppet, absolutely yeah. right. But it's much more difficult face. to change it back, I suspect. Alice, yep. you got a name for me? Mike Graham. Oh, there right. You go. <laughs> Listen, I couldn't <laughs> afford the pay cut. You might have had a job. Couldn't afford the pay cut. If it um, was between Rishi and Starmer, then Rishi, Dishy Rishi, 100%. Only because Starmer is just, to me, so loathsome as someone who has not a single grain of principle in his body, totally spineless, a total liar, yeah. and someone who I think would look very weak on the international stage. Also, I hate his and hair. And at this current moment, I don't know what it we is. cannot afford to. Be I hate Keir Starmer's hair. There's something weird about it. We started nicknaming him. <laughs> and snake he was charmer. a lawyer, so we started naming him Snake Charmer. <laughs> you got a name for us, Candice? Oh, I like David Davis. He's very principled, yeah. and I also I really like Steve Baker. But you don't see much of him these yeah, days. Yeah, but he kind of went a bit wobbly at one point, didn't oh. he? When he suddenly they offered him a job in the cabinet, and all the stuff that he used to talk about, he didn't talk about anymore. Yeah. So I think he got bought off, which is unfortunate because I used to quite like him. As I well. liked him during lockdown. He does wear a leather um, uh, sort of thing around his neck, though, which is always a bit. A bit yeah, I'd say Jacob Rees Mogg, actually. You know, thinking bit, about bit good conservatives. Like somebody from, I think he is from Cornwall, isn't he? That probably explains it. Anyway, <laughs> uh, you're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Uh, we'll find out just exactly what Mr. Sunak's narrow win in the Commons over his Rwanda bill will mean for his party and his future, and the nonsense of post-study work visas driving your wages down. Don't go anywhere. The panel will be back later.
Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, rather than pulling in global talent, bonkers visa rules have in fact fueled low-wage migration. So finds a recent report by the Independent Migration Advisory Committee. Rules were introduced for postgraduates on visas, allowing foreign students and their dependents, believe it or not, to work in the UK for two years after graduating. Turns out, just like we told you, that was pretty stupid. For heaven's sake, of course it was. I'm now joined by former Brexit Party MEP Ben Habib and former UKIP leader Henry Bolton. Very good evening to you both. Thank you very much for uh, for joining us. Um, I have to start off with, uh, Ben, the idea that, uh, that migration has become a problem that the Conservative government can seemingly not fix. It's, <laughs> it's now such a boring kind of um, template that we have to talk about. I don't know where to go with it. Well, it's, you know, it's a, it's a function, I think, of a number of different things. An inability to recognise the need to promote British, the British workforce. Yeah. Um, a failure in understanding that it's not just supporting GDP that matters, mm. it's GDP per capita or right. a per hour work. A complete collapse in an understanding of what the social fabric of the United Kingdom means. Yeah. And, and, and also falling for, into this trap that somehow immigration is some sort of panacea yeah. for growth, when actually, ultimately, all it does is bring a bigger burden on uh, infrastructure, a bigger burden on our public yeah. services, a bigger burden on housing, and immigrants get old too. Yes. And they need care when they get right. older. And they won't have paid into the system no. in the same way as the money they're going to take so out. So it's a kind of, you undermine the British worker, you bring in lots of unskilled workers, you keep our economy working on a third world economic model, and then you have a huge number of costs you need to meet in order to look after these people. It's a Ponzi scheme that simply doesn't add yeah, up. It doesn't add up. Henry, I mean, this idea that you could bring dependents with you, we discovered this, you probably knew it long ago, but we discovered this, I would say, I don't know, a couple of months ago, that, that people coming mm -hmm. here as students were actually bringing loads of people with them in some ludicrous yep. ideal that the government had given them so that they could not only bring people that were more dependent, than they were on the state, um, but they would become further dependent on the state and would probably stay here for longer. And, I mean, we're only now discovering that this was a stupid idea. I mean, who on earth would have thought that it was a good one? I have no idea, Mike. <laughs> Absolutely no idea at all. Um, you know, the, the only uh, idea that I can think of why anybody would possibly think of this is uh, rather ideological. Um, let's open up Britain to educating the world and benefiting the world. You know, there is a school of thought, I know, within certain parts of government, particularly the Department for International Development, that the money that migrants who are here send back to their countries um, actually helps development in those countries. That might be a, a, that might be a legitimate argument. However, that's money going out of the United Kingdom, not staying mm. in the United Kingdom. So it is a yet, yet another draw on the British economy of the sort that Ben has just been talking about. The, the, the numbers, of the, the weight on the British economy in, in all manner of respects is absolutely massive, yeah. even if some of these people pay into pay their taxes. Um, but of course, students aren't really paying their taxes, and their dependents are probably not working, paying for them, uh, no. paying taxes either. They're probably on benefits. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It turns out that most of the money that comes into the country goes to private 
sort of, you know, educational institutions, Ben. Um, and so the, the university is doing very well, thank you very much indeed, and they just keep wanting to bring more and more people in. But the rest of us are picking up the tab. I mean, I go back to back, back in the beginning of the of the Blair years when all the Polish people came to Britain. Remember when he said 15,000 Polish people will come? A million And came. a million came. A million I mean, came. that is, yeah. a, is, a, is an under-representation, yeah. quite remarkable uh, confines. But worse than that, I happened to have a young baby at the time and who was in a kindergarten nearby in, in, uh, in near Edinburgh where I was living. And practically all the other kids in the kindergarten were Polish and they were getting child... The, the mothers would talk to the mother of my son and say, oh, yeah, we get child benefit, we send it all back to Poland. Great. You know, Terrific. So fantastic, you know, because they, they, they didn't even have to be born here. They just had to bring no. the kids with them and they would apply for child benefit and they would get it. And, I mean, it might not be loads of money, but if it's happening with about sort of half a million people, that's a lot of money disappearing. Well, you know what, what was quite interesting, Mike, is I set up a business in Poland in 2005 uh -huh. I, I, we moved, we kind of shut down our UK operations and we started in Poland. Right. Because we could see, with, with Poland having joined the EU, that it was just a money transfer right. system. And I thought, well, I might as well go to Poland, invest in Poland right. and get some of our British pounds back. Mm to the UK. Yeah. And, you know, it's been a phenomenal success. That's a funny thing. That's an interesting story, that, because my, I, I suddenly started buying stock in Polish um, Did you? building. Well, you saw because, the same thing. Because yeah. I saw this, because I mean, I remember if I was investing in your company, but anyway, that's another story. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it, you're absolutely right. It's just a transfer. It's a money, tra it's a wealth it's transfer money. scheme, and right. it's our money. Yeah. And Poland, by the way, I mean, they are absolutely brilliant at taking advantage of the EU and, right. and good on them for doing yeah. so. They get the biggest sums of money out of the EU every year in the, in the entire European Union. Yeah. £100 billion over every seven-year period. Right. Think about what that does for your economy. Absolutely. And think about the damage it does for all the countries that have to cough up that money. Mm. And well, um, Britain being one of them. Britain, Britain having been excited. one of them. We didn't seem yeah. to get any benefit whatsoever. It's a bit like, um, Henry, I always used to complain when I'd go to various different countries, whether it was Spain or Ireland or Portugal um, or Germany or France. The roads in all those countries were always better than ours. And everyone said, oh, yeah, that's because the EU gives them money to rebuild them. And I'm like, well, why don't we yeah. get that? No, we don't get that because we're too rich, apparently. <laughs> yeah, indeed, Mike. I mean, look, you know, that's the whole thing, isn't it? We have been milked throughout this. And for some bizarre reason, we've had a succession of governments that have actually supported the yeah, idea. Yeah, they just rolled over. Uh, why? Uh, it it defi defies belief that they've done this. But the point now, Mike, is that we want to see government, political parties, everybody who's involved in this, wake up, learn the lesson, and actually, in a good traditional conservative manner, and I'm not talking about conservative party, I'm talking about old school conservatism, actually work to further the interests of the United Kingdom, further the interests of the British people, and that includes securing our society, our culture, our way of life, our heritage, as the foundations on which society can grow and evolve. And of course, there's a multicultural element to it. Britain has always had immigration and may always have so. But it has to be properly managed and it has to be managed in a way that does not pose any sort of pressure or threat or strain to the British economy and the infrastructure and the services that provide for the British people. Yeah. That cannot happen because otherwise we are starting to weaken the entire state and that will only lead us to be coming down to the level of countries that are sadly not as well advanced as we are, don't have the same values, don't have the same mm. rule of law, don't have the same security and so on. So, you know, people have to wake up to this. And I think they are starting to. And I think the Conservative Party is way out of touch on that. Mm. 
Sunak's moved them to, to the centre. He's busy sort of worrying about, sort of, I think he actually believes that immigration is a good idea, but he's trying to sort of bluff his way through all yeah. the people in his party who think it's not. Yes. Um, and it's not going to work. He's going to get decimated in the election if he doesn't change course rapidly. And I don't see any sign of yeah. that. No, I think that's right. I mean, he only ever really talks about illegal migration. He only ever talks about how yeah. he's managed to slow the boats down and that there's only uh, two thirds as many people coming as there were. Well, that's the year because before. a third of them were Albanians. Well, that's yeah. also <laughs> true. But I mean, if you saw the Albanian National Day celebration, which brought London to a standstill the other day, there's still plenty of Albanians <laughs> left still here. Still plenty of them to be sent home. But how about this for, for you, though? David Cameron today, uh, and I want to hear from both of you on this, Ben. Um, David Cameron, for some reason, I don't understand why the timing is. is is, is, of this is done now, but he's basically had a go at extremist Israeli settlers um, who are basically occupying the West Bank. Uh, he says that they target and kill Palestinian civilians. He says that they are undermining security and stability for both Israel and Palestine. But he then announces that we are going to ban these people from coming to Britain. Now, you might say that's a reasonable thing to do. However, when you consider that the former leaders of Hamas and current sort of people who are still quite recently up to speed with supporting Hamas live in this country. One of them lives in North London, a former Hamas leader. Yeah. Uh, the fact that we've got extremists coming over on boats, we know there are terrorists coming on the small boats from all sorts of countries uh, which have jihadis in them. You know, it seems a bit of a weird thing to do. Because he doesn't ban them. It's particularly weird from David Cameron. This yeah. is a man who... Uh, entice the entire North African, um, you know, North Africa and Syria, Bahrain, Saudi, yeah. into open revolt, bombed the hell out of Libya, took a state that was admittedly run by a complete lunatic Gaddafi, but it had, yeah. he had it under control. Right. He's turned it into a failed state. Cameron turned Libya into a failed and state. And we're still suffering. And we're still suffering. He turned, he turned Syria into a failed state. We might not like the Assad family, but actually they had Syria under control. Yeah. It was a reasonably pros prosperous and peaceful country. This is a man, Cameron, has done untold damage to world mm. peace. For him to get up on his high horse and talk about the damage the Israelis are doing in the West Bank yeah. is so disconnected with his own past and what's going on you know, in the Middle East it's in generally. He's an unbelievably awful man. Yeah. And the fact that he's back in government, the fact that... Rishi Sunak couldn't find a foreign secretary in amongst his MPs that he could trust right. to do the job is absolutely symptomatic of a broken Conservative Party. Cameron should be nowhere near office. No. He, failed on, he failed on his campaign for Remain. He failed the country and he just ditched it when he couldn't get his way. He's bombed the hell out of the Middle East. He's significantly responsible for the immigration problems we face today. And he is now being entrusted with our foreign policy, apparently because he's experienced, sure, a lot of bad yeah, experience. Bad experience is, bad, is worse than no experience. Bad experience. And he's right? going to take us close to the EU. He's going to take us closer and closer mm. and closer. And that's not what we want. What we wanted, which Henry explained so well, is British policies made for British national interest with the British people's interests at heart. Yeah. That's what we want. We want a government that looks after us. Yeah. It's called a British government. It's called it? a British government. I mean, you yeah. know, it's a genuinely revolutionary <laughs> idea for reform. Ben Habib, thank you very much indeed. Henry, I haven't got time to uh, get you back on, but we'll get you back on again soon. Thank you so much. Uh, this is the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Imagine a British government doing things for Britain. Amazing. Uh, over two months have gone by, though, uh, since Hamas's heinous attack in Israel. 
but pro-Palestinian protests continue. And more worryingly, a new report shows British Jews have never been more afraid to live in Britain. Do not go anywhere. That's coming up next. Welcome back. A renter mob of pro-Palestinian supporters tried to storm the Royal Society of Arts today in protest at an event it was holding, which was led by the father of a boy murdered by Hamas. Tom Mummery was among those protesting outside the embassy. He said he is a member of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign and he appeared to show sympathy with Hamas. If I was a Palestinian, then um, I wouldn't... If I was Palestinian and I was treated the way that Israelis treat Palestinians, I would be more surprised if something like October the 7th didn't happen. It was inevitable. It wasn't a case of if, it was a case of when. How can you not? Well, the event he was protesting outside was organised by former Israeli science and technology minister uh, Itzar Shai. His project is called Next October, which promotes investing in innovative startups in Israel. And he explained why he was personally motivated to set up Next October. My son, Yaron Ori, was, uh, was a soldier in the Israeli army. He was uh, in charge, his unit was in charge of keeping the peace. Again, keeping the peace on the Gaza border, and they were stationed there on October 7th. My son fell in action. He was killed that day in a heroic battle against many, many terrorists. But Yizar wasn't convinced that protesters like Tom know actually what they're supporting. I wonder why these demonstrators here are making a point to come here into a, an economic conference that deals with bringing innovation and doing good to the world. This is just ridiculous and, uh, and shows the hypocrisy and maybe misunderstanding of innocent people here who just have no idea about what is going on out there and how cruel the people they are demonstrating for have acted and still are uh, advocating uh, in terms of what they want to do had we not been able to protect ourselves. To discuss this alarming rise in anti-Semitism, uh, which is still going on, uh, we're going to talk to Jonathan Satcher-Dossi right now. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, joining us. I mean, I've been still quite shocked at the extent to which people have sympathy for what happened to... Um, uh, uh, what, what Hamas did, they have sympathy for what Hamas did uh, on October the 7th, that terrible, terrible atrocity that they committed, um, and how they've sort of turned the hostage-taking into something which people really don't discuss anymore, that there are still hostages inside Gaza, the fact that young uh, men, British men like that, can go and demonstrate and say he's not surprised that it happened. I mean, I find it staggering. I mean, you're, you're probably going to say to me now, well, you shouldn't find it staggering, but, but I still do. I can't quite believe that in Britain and in America, a country that I spend a lot of time in, has this problem. Well, it was really weird hearing what Heath had just there. It wasn't a question of if, it was a question of when. Yeah. And he could understand why. So it's because of whatever he thinks is going on with the Palestinians, it mm. was a question of when thousands of people would rape, right. butcher, kidnap and kill people because they were Jewish yeah. and plenty who weren't. I think that's a really strange mm. distortion of morality. And I think actually what we're seeing at the moment in a lot of this support that claims to be for Palestinians is people who are like that man seemed to be, mm. actually quite sympathetic towards anti-Semitic terrorists. Yes. And I think that's really the problem. But what's definitely interesting as well is that that isn't restricted to Gaza and the Gaza borders mm. in Israel. We have plenty of it here, I'm afraid to say. So when we saw people 
uh, being butchered and killed and even hear these uh, horrific eyewitness accounts of rape and gang rape mm. and sexual assault as well that took place on the 7th of October in Israel. We only need to think back a couple of years to when we saw cars driving through the streets of London mm. covered in Palestinian flags with megaphones shouting, yeah. F the Jews, yeah. rape their mothers, rape their daughters. Right. What I think we need to realise is that this threat, this psychopathic threat, isn't one that just exists on the border of Gaza. It exists all around the world. And we need to take people seriously when they say yeah. things like that. Oh, I think so. And unfortunately, both the Metropolitan Police, who have been kind of raked over the coals several times for their inability to sort of control some of the things that go on when these Palestinian marches go through London, um, they've been very lax about all of this. And we know from their previous history in all sorts of areas that, that they're very frightened and very nervous of being accused of being racist, very frightened of Muslim um, authority, very frightened of the Muslim sort of advisors that they seem to have brought inside the organisation. They've had to kick some of them out because they've realised that some of them are actually rather extreme. But there does seem to be this very thin line. Piers Morgan has many guests on his show who will not just will not condemn the Hamas attacks on October the 7th without some kind of equivocation. You know, they won't just say, yes, that was disgusting, it should never have happened, Hamas should be done away with. They won't say it if they're from the pro-Palestinian cause. Well, it's, it's become one of the Piers Morgan litmus tests, yeah. I've noticed. He has some, some pretty horrific characters he on the programme. Yeah. And, and he will say that it's because it's called Uncensored and you have yeah. people from both sides, extreme views from both sides. And actually, I think he's been doing a brilliant job yes. of, of airing Oh, I think he things. has, because I think we need to see these people out in the open, particularly the one he had on this week, who was an NHS doctor. Well, I mean, just imagine seeing that doctor who, who he was heard to have said this was a punch on the nose for Jews, yeah. a deserved punch on the nose, what happened on, mm. on the 7th of, uh, 7th of October in Israel. Mm. Uh, he had some pretty awful other things to say. He wouldn't contradict uh, that thing about gay people no. that one of his colleagues in his organisation had said. Imagine going to a doctor knowing they've said those things. Of course, doctors are allowed to have opinions. Yeah. Doctors are allowed to have political views, even ones you and I might disagree with. Yeah. But when they go on television and start sharing mm. them, you do have to wonder how their patients are going to feel all their and trainees. I think, and I think also, you know, we have these conversations a lot on this on this station about, you know, free speech and the ability to say the things that you believe in, whether they might be abhorrent or not. That's all very well, and I agree with that. However, if you are doing a job like um, an NHS doctor's job, surely there's a code of practice which would suggest that, you know, there are some opinions that if you have them, that you should either keep them to yourself or you, sh or you shouldn't be working in the NHS. If you don't feel like you can treat Jewish people and gay people in the same way as you treat everybody else, then you've got no business working in the public sector, have you? Well, I think some of them might say, and that doctor might have said, that he will treat them as he will treat all other patients. But I can certainly tell you, uh, as a Jewish person, as a gay person, I wouldn't want to go to a doctor I'd heard saying that, even if I thought no. he was able well, he to can treat also, me yeah, and the can, same and medically. He can, and exactly right. And you can, he can say, until he's blue in the face, that he's treating you equally. But, you know, what guarantees does he give you for that? And, and beyond that, I think what you said earlier about the police is very interesting mm. because I think what many Jewish people and non-Jewish people are starting to think about how policing goes on in the UK is that their focus is on maintaining peace and community cohesion. Their mm. focus is on trying to keep everyone yeah. calm. So we've seen some really weird things happening. Yeah. Like when we saw the police telling that guy to put away his England flag yes. because it might upset the mob mm. who were there with Palestinian flags. Yeah. So waving the flag of England in England yes. was something they shut down. We've seen similar things when the police uh, got some advans which were showing pictures of the hostages yes. being held in Gaza, got them to switch them off right. because they said it might 
uh, inflame some kind of uh, problem with the right. pro-Palestinian marchers. And now we've seen, also in the last few days, that uh, there was a billboard company with electronic billboards. Uh, they have gone back on a contract, a two-week contract, from the charity that was trying to raise awareness of the hostages being held in Gaza still, mm. over 130 of them, I think. Uh, they were th Those ads were dropped. And they said, I spoke to their, their representative this week, they right. said that was because there had been threats and threats of violence made and the police had got mm. in touch and effectively recommended they pull the ads. So legal ads, right. free speech about a humanitarian cause, yeah. non-political, not paid for by a state. Right. And they've pulled them down at the advice of the police because the police are trying to keep peace. Effectively, they're protecting the thugs and the right. violent, intimidating bullies, mm. not the people who are trying to raise yeah. awareness of, and, and of those being kept well, hostage. Isn't it? Because, you know, we've got statistics that show something like 80% of the Jewish people in, in Britain feel less safe than, than they did. We know that anti-Semitic incidents of hate crime are, are either uh, either by violence or by by speech are up thousands of percentage points, and and yet um, it's almost as though the people who are kind of behind the pro-Palestinian movements are quite left-wing, quite woke, um, and they've sort of turned this into a sort of social justice campaign, and they've somehow mm. convinced themselves and each other uh, that Israel's bad and Palestine's good. And I mean, it's clearly far more nuanced than that to begin with. And also, as I always point out, well, there's only one state in that part of the world which is, has, a, has a properly elected government, and that's Israel. And if you look at the map, all you see is this tiny little dot in a sea of massive Arab nations, none of whom, by, by the way, want the Palestinians. Well, and you know, it's not a football match. I always have a problem when people say, you know, I'm, I'm supporting yeah. Palestine, I'm supporting Israel. Yeah. Uh, effectively, we're, we're all supporting all of humanity, mm. trying to create a peaceful situation yeah. for people to be able to live in their homeland where they want to in safety and security. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that what you mentioned about the anti-Semitism statistics is also important yeah. because that's closer to home. There was that Salvation poll yes. carried out by the uh, the polling company Salvation. Mm. They said 77% uh, of British Jews feel less safe than before the 7th mm. of October. It's a massive number. 87% yeah. uh, uh, have said that anti-Semitism has grown in the last five years. 67% of that said that it, it increased a lot. And, and I think we understand why. They were mm. also asked about how much they trust institutions like the BBC, yeah. uh, how much they trust university authorities in the UK. You know, 62% trust the BBC less. 57% yeah. uh, trust university administrations less. 48% trust the police less. And why? Right. I think we know why. The BBC had Jeremy Bowen yeah. claiming that the Israelis that had flattened a hospital. Yeah. Uh, when, when it came out that actually Palestinian Islamic Jihad had made a crater in the car park, yeah. he was on another programme on the BBC defending it. He yeah. said, I don't regret anything yes. about my reporting. Incredible. In the same programme that yeah. he said, oh, I got that wrong. Yeah. Well, as a journalist, if I got something wrong, it can happen to right. all of us, uh, I, I would apologise for it. Well, I you would wouldn't say, say I, I don't regret it, I do you? regret it. Right. Exactly. Even if it were justifiable, mm. which it wasn't. John Donaldson made the same mistake yeah. on the BBC, alleging that Israel had done it when, when the leading... Uh, lawyer Natasha Hausdorff was waiting to go on as a guest and had advised them not to say right. that. I think there's a there's a whole barrage of things oh, that totally. have got wrong. And the I BBC think have been horrendous during this whole period. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think that that statistic there, 
62% of British Jews trust mm. the BBC less yeah. than before the 7th of October. Uh, the BBC often, I often hear this from, from BBC responses, because um, I've done a bit of reporting in my time on BBC mm. bias, particularly in the BBC's Arabic programming. Yes. Uh, and, and I think yes, something and like that was, six... That was, that was the, really bad as well. Something like six of the presenters on BBC mm. Arabic were found to have tweeted and said yeah. things in, in their own private yeah. accounts after October the 7th, which were seen as supportive or problematic uh, towards Hamas. Yeah. Yes. They will always say, oh, well, we get complaints from this side, we get complaints from that side, it means we're doing something right. I would say no. your aim should be not to get complaints from <laughs> right. this side or exactly. from that side. If, if you're getting everybody angry yeah. and you're making everybody feeling like you're doing a bad job, chances are probably doing a bad yeah. job. I, I tend to agree more. I mean, I've heard that excuse before from the BBC, and it's, I'm sorry, it doesn't wash. You know, that is not by any means a model. Your aim shouldn't be to, no, exactly right. to annoy everybody. But also, did they not also say to their staff that they shouldn't go on the... Um, the, the march against anti-Semitism, which took place a couple of Sundays ago, and they, some of them were just like, well, we're going anyway. And also, we hear a lot now from BBC employees who are Jewish that they don't feel very sort of comfortable working at the BBC. But, Jonathan, listen, we could talk about this all night, I'm sure, but, but we must, we must dash. Great to see you. Thank you for coming in. Thanks um, for having me. And we've got much more of this, I'm sure, to discuss, and we'll do it some more uh, coming up. We want to hear from all of you, though, of course, as well, because uh, we're going to be telling you about some of the rise uh, of what I would call young radicalists in this country because uh, we've got a poll for you and we've got some studies for you to show that the new threat is actually terror teens. So we want to hear from you. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Now it's time for Taking the Mic. Recent events in the Middle East and the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas have brought the prospect of terrorism around the world back into sharp focus. There have already been several instances of terror following the atrocities committed by Hamas on October the 7th, and you don't have to look very far in this country to see signs that the radicalisation of people to the extremist Islamic cause is a very much a thing. From hate-filled chants on pro-Palestine marches to threats of jihad against Jewish people around the globe, this country has already raised the likelihood of a terror attack in recent weeks. In fact, one has just been foiled in Europe. On Piers Morgan's show, Uncensored, there are a stream of pro-Palestine guests who refuse to unequivocally denounce those Hamas attacks on innocent families, women, the elderly and children too. Indeed, there are still scores of hostages held under the streets of Gaza against their will in dark tunnels with no apparent hope of freedom. And this is why what I'm about to tell you should concern us all. New Home Office figures have shown that one third of all referrals to the UK's Prevent Anti-Terrorism Scheme are actually children under the age of 14. In total, in the last year, nearly 7,000 people were referred due to concerns that they were susceptible to radicalisation and could become potential terrorists. Of those, 2,119 were children under the age of 14 and 2,203 were aged between 15 and 20. The numbers are concerning for several reasons. They're up over 6% on the previous year and they cover a period before those terror attacks in Israel in October. So the number today is bound to have gone up, might have even doubled. We know that anti-Semitic attacks have rocketed by more than 1,000% and many synagogues now have armed security guards watching over them. But as you might expect, there are plenty of lefties who say, oh, those figures are all wrong. Amnesty International are now claiming that many of the children have been identified for the wrong reasons and then stigmatised as being possible terrorists. 
Well, surely it's better to be safe than sorry. And there's nothing to suggest that prevent ruins anyone's life. Anti-terror police are constantly investigating hundreds of plots on a daily basis, many of them homegrown. And over in France, they already know what a big problem this could become. Only this week, a 12-year-old schoolgirl was arrested after threatening to kill her teacher with a large knife she'd brought into the classroom. And earlier this month, six teenagers were convicted in a French court for their part in the beheading of a secondary school teacher near Paris. The future is there for all of us to see, and we can only hope that the government and our security services are watching. Now, lots of you have been getting in touch, and you can have your say on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, of course, as well, 0344 499 1000. Let's hear now from a caller. John, he's in Newcastle. He's on the NHS. Hello, John. Hello, Mike. Uh, the NHS, uh, I'm getting towards 80. 50 years ago, I went to France to saw a friend. His aunt was in hospital. Oh, come along and see her. I, I don't know the lady. Come along, come along. And I went along. And she was waiting twice a me in, three weeks for an operation. When I got back to Newcastle 50 years ago, um, I asked the nurse who lived at the top of our street at the time, and she worked at what we call the General Hospital. Yeah. And she came back with an answer, not straight away, but when I did say her next, because, you know, I wasn't friend, it's friends of hers, uh, she said around about 14 to 15 weeks. And when I heard that, at uh, that age, I thought, wow, but I'm in the best health service in yeah. the world. Well, the Tories told us this. <laughs> well, it's not so much. It's not so much the Tories that tell you. It's the NHS that tell you, and it's everyone that supposedly says it's the greatest things in sliced bread, which it clearly, absolutely is not. But listen, John, thanks. We've got to run. Uh, this is the unstoppable independent Republican Mike Graham. In the next hour, we'll look at the princess of privacy underpaying her female staff, plus the mixed reception of the Crown's final episode. Do not go anywhere. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com.
Good evening. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and of course, we're on your smart speaker. Tonight, a secret non white Christmas party held by a Democratic mayor in America. Is racism on her wish list? A warning to parents that Facebook is now a predator's playground for your children. And if a man told you he was on contraception, would you really believe him? Now, the final series, the final series of The Crown has come to a close. I don't know if you're one of those people that watched it. I mean, I studiously did not watch it. Was it good TV, though, or has it royally lost the plot? Uh, we'll be taking your calls coming up. Get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344 499 Calls will cost you uh, the national rate. But we'll also take your calls on Rishi Sunak and everything else we've been talking about and these young uh, jihadis uh, that seem to be being trained up, people uh, who, are going to, who are going to be recommended to go to prevent to try and stop them from causing terrorist incidents in this country. 0344-499-1000. Let's talk, though, um, about the US of A, because Boston is one of America's great cities. It's known for having one of the oldest baseball stadiums in the country with Fenway Park. It's a very proud tradition of Irish heritage, and its St. Patrick's Day parade is truly one of the best around. It sits just across the river from Harvard University, and the seafood isn't bad either. The entire state of Massachusetts is, of course, renowned in the political world for being the home of the Kennedy dynasty. But now we can add another item to the list of things Boston is famous for, and it's not one that the city should be proud of, and that is racism. Because Boston's mayor, Michelle Wu, the city's first Asian-American to occupy the role, is in a bit of hot water after an email was mistakenly sent out to people who weren't supposed to see it. Michelle was not only stupid enough to send an invitation for a Christmas holiday party exclusively for electeds of colour. That's right, electeds of colour. But one of her aides then sent the invitation to the entire city council, many of whom are actually white. Cue lots of wailing and gnashing of teeth. Some have branded it unfortunate and divisive, and others have called it out for being nothing short of actual racism. It will come as no surprise to anyone, of course, to discover that Michelle is a Democrat. Of course she is. How very predictable. Now, later on the show, the panel will return and we'll be bringing you a first look at tomorrow's front pages and some other stories as well. But before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at the Sun newspaper uh, and we've got what we call a spread in that business, which is pages um, 14 and 15, I think it is, um, of Missing Gaynor Lord. Pictures of her glancing into a shop window in the last footage before she vanished. This is the woman who headed to a cathedral um, before she went missing uh, up in Norwich. She disappeared on Friday. One last glance and she was gone. It's a real riddle because there are various pieces of footage of her running, various pieces of footage of her uh, looking at things. Uh, she was filmed rushing through Norwich City Centre before entering the cathedral area around about 2.48. But there have been no further sightings of Gaynor since 3.22 when she was seen exiting the cathedral quarter. And obviously uh, the police are searching for her uh, in all sorts of different places and there are worries um, that she may indeed um, have kind of uh, ended up in the water uh, near a river uh, where she was seen going towards. But we'll bring you more on that, uh, obviously, as it happens. But that's what the Sun are doing with that story. One last glance, and she was gone. Um, now, today marks the end of The Crown on Netflix. Let's hear some cheers, shall we? Well done, 
we finally got to the end of it. And we finally ran out of dirt to dig, mud to fling, and conversations to fabricate. Writer Peter Morgan decided to bring the series to a close. Joining me now, all the way from LA, is our favourite host, of course, uh, of the To Die For Daily podcast, Kinsey Schofield. Kinsey, um, very good evening to you once again. Good to see you. I'm so, you're, there's a, a tone. I'm sensing a tone. I have to tell you, I loved this season, so I'm probably, we're probably going to clash on this. We may do. I have studiously avoided watching it. You know, obviously being in the business that we are in, I've had to watch some clips and I've had to make comments about things and I've had to read up about some of the stuff that's in the show. I've seen, I can tell you the clips that I've seen. I've seen the craziest clip of, the, of, of all where there's the ghost of Diana haunting Charles... Um, at the end, right, which kind of, for me, ruins the whole thing. You know, they've sort of turned it into it. Dallas and, you know, Bobby coming out of the shower. I've seen the ridiculous <laughs> one of Diana um, sort of dancing as a young girl in the background where there's a lot of plants and there's a room, which also looks like it never happened. I don't think it did ever happen. And I saw a clip tonight no. of young Harry, who doesn't look anything like young Harry. Um, and, and that's about it, really. And uh, I'm not sorry that I haven't seen any of it. But here's your chance to persuade me to watch it. Well, I don't know if this is, I, don't, I really don't know if the, it will interest <laughs> you because what I'm loving about this final season is, is the love story and the, the real fairy tale between the prince and princess of Wales, watching mm. Prince William ache for this young woman named Kate that's yes. at his school that's unavailable, that he's longing for. I mean, to me, I just sit, that, sit there with my popcorn and my Starbucks living vicariously through these two uh, that are that I know to be you know in love today. So it's yeah. so exciting to watch that that develop. I don't believe in this. I've read it in Tina Brown's book. I maybe Christopher Anderson's. I don't believe that her mother Carol is this schemer that put all of these puzzle pieces together to ensure that they ended up together. I believe that her family is incredibly uh, uh, an incredibly strong unit that's had a great influence on William and, and Kate. Um, but other than that, I've really enjoyed the William and, and Catherine love story um, in the, this season of The Crown. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, is that I remember back to when he first met Kate and, and that picture from St Andrews, uh, which was very rang very true for those of us who know what St Andrews University is like because it's full of English people. Hardly any Scottish people actually go there and it's a very posh part of the world. But also, you know, her mother was very much seen as a kind of... Uh, I mean, in the days before Meghan Markle, she was very much seen as a, as a sort of uppity, middle-class woman uh, who had once been a stewardess. I mean, they used to do that thing where uh, they would go, you know, doors to manual whenever she would walk into a room um, and this way to the toilets and all of that. Um, and they, people were quite mean about her. And also... Um, you know, Kate did have a kind of what you might call interesting family. You know, she had a brother who was a bit on the dodgy side. She had the sister um, who was famously portrayed as having the greatest bottom at the wedding, uh, if you remember. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and oh, yeah. you know, that was how we used to cover them, you know. And so I think the, the fact that they've emerged as this kind of complete and utter, you know, brilliant couple who absolutely sum up what's great about the modern monarchy... She's come a long way because she was she was very much the um, you know weighty Katie they used to call her. She was very much the kind of um, oh. And, you know, and can we just in comparison? Can we just talk about in comparison how cruel we were to Catherine's family? And you look over at at Meghan Markle's a divorced mother and father. Yes. Uh, um, her a brother who right before she was married I believe was arrested for some sort of domestic issue. Yeah. 
you know, I mean, we were so cool about Catherine, but we did give Megan the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. We did not question the fact that she had no relatives coming to her own royal wedding, her second wedding. It's wild to me that they can moan and groan so much about the way that they right. were treated uh, in comparison to the way everyone treated Catherine and the Middleton family. Absolutely. Well, I made that point very much when Meghan started to complain and started, because the, the cracks started showing, I guess, I don't know how many years ago, yeah. but well, you remember when stories yeah. started to appear that they seemed to keep losing staff at a horrendous rate. You know, people couldn't work for her because she was so demanding. People couldn't stay working in Kensington Palace for longer than a few months at a time because it was so horrendous, you know, getting flaming emails at five o'clock in the morning and getting demands for things that, you know, nobody could, could fulfil. But, yeah, I mean, I, I made this point at the time, that Kate's family, the Middletons, were, were put under far more pressure and were far more criticised and were far more kind of, you know, derided and made fun of than anybody in Markle's family ever was. I mean, you know, I believe Megan's mom was a yoga teacher at some point throughout their relationship. Yeah. We didn't see anybody throwing out mats, doing long stretches whenever mm. they were talking about Megan and her family. Um, but, you, you know, you talk about the, the, the turnover within Meghan Markle's unit. Uh, I don't know if you're ready to, to transition into this story, but um, yesterday we had mentioned how much Meghan's team is getting paid today. Yes. Uh, there, there was a clash between Meghan when she was still in the Fab Four. Remember when they did that panel chat and, and Meghan tried to pivot the conversation um, to, it wasn't, it, it was that, um, oh my gosh, right when I'm ready to go on, I space. It was that uh, the the Hollywood campaign for fair wage. Oh, yes. And it, what was that? It wasn't Me Too. It was something. No, it was like a parity thing, up. wasn't it? Time's up. It was yeah. time's up. So Meghan is a, a new member of the royal family, and she's sitting there with sitting next to Prince William and Kate, trying to champion Times Up. And everybody's looking at each other like, "What? Are, this is not. To, we're usually dealing with orphans and right. cancer-stricken people. Like this is not our. This is not usually where we go." Well, we find out through Meghan and Harry's tax returns that uh, for Archwell that her, the female, the, the highest paid female is still making less than half of what the highest paid male is making of the five employees that Archwell pays. Time's up, Megan. Right. Are you kidding me? The hypocrisy of it all. Absolutely. Well, hypocrisy and Meghan Markle, I mean, so try not to shock us too much at this point, you know, like, gag me with a spoon, <laughs> as we would say. You know, the point is, is that, of course, you know, she won't be able to explain this one away along with everything else that she can't explain away. You know, she'll probably blame somebody else. She'll say that it wasn't anything to do with her. But when you've only got, like, five employees, surely to God you must know what they're all getting paid. Exactly. And this is a woman, according to her, her resume online, that has 24 years experience compared to James Holtz, who I believe he has 16 years of experience. Yeah. What the internet is saying what our friends online are well actually and richard eden of the daily mail suggesting that you know james holt's significant paycheck is in relation to the fact that he stayed so loyal to them after leaving the royal family uh you know he richard eden mentions that this is an individual that aside from being on their uh, under 200 street you know viewed on netflix series harry and megan james holt also has a relationship with Omid Scobie, alluding to the fact, could James Holt um, be one of the individuals that, that sourced Endgame? Right. So uh, may, perhaps maybe that's why James is paid so well. 
Yes, well, that would explain it because I'm not quite sure why he manages to garner a salary in excess of $200,000 a year uh, working for an organisation that doesn't appear to have a lot to do. Even if you uh, were giving them the benefit of the doubt and saying, well, they're very good, they, they give money away, there's not much going on. I mean, there's not like, you don't get the sense that you'd open a door and there'd be this hive of activity. You know, there's, right. there's literally nothing happening. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, despite their glossy video and the one mental health event that they did, um, you know, I do believe that they really, I think Invict Invictus is an incredible organization. But like I've said before, Invictus is incredible because it was created under the royal umbrella and some real experts helped yeah. build the template for that. They really did. Now, we've got some news that just in, and, and it's not really the royal family, but it's sort of TV royalty, if you like. The Sun uh, on their front page this morning have got a This Morning exclusive. You might remember the whole Philip Schofield, Holly Willoughby scandal. ITV's done its own investigation. Uh, we've now got Ben and Kat get a rise. So presenters Ben Shepard and Kat Dealey, who was in California for quite a long time until recently, yeah. uh, are apparently going to get big money deals as the new faces for this morning. I mean, I don't know why you would watch it, because obviously you'd be watching Talk Today with Jeremy Kyle. But what do you make of it? Well, I, you know, I did, I remember watching Kat here in the States. She's very charming. And yeah. I, I've seen Ben one time at Soho House. I feel so cool. Um, <laughs> I, I remember seeing him there. He seems like a lovely individual. He is. Phil and Holly were, they were an, were an incredibly iconic duo. So there's going to be a lot of comparison there. I wish them luck, but it's going to be hard to compete with, with two people that had a real chemistry with yeah. each other. They really did. But funnily enough, it was the event of the Queen's funeral, of course, that ended up messing everything up for them. And that was just the beginning of it all falling apart. Kinsey, have a great weekend. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us tonight. Kinsey Schofield, they're reporting in uh, from Los Angeles, California. Now, we're going to go to another part of the world because a British boy who has not been seen since his mother and grandfather supposedly abducted him in Spain six years ago, he's been found alive and well in France. Alex Batty, originally from Oldham in Lancashire, was just 11 when he didn't return from a holiday with his mother Melanie and grandfather David in 2017. Alex's grandmother and official guardian said in 2018 she believed her daughter and ex-husband had taken him abroad to live, in her words, an alternative lifestyle. But now, six years after his disappearance, prosecutors say that Alex has been found alive and well near Toulouse after fleeing a spiritual community located in the foothills of the French Pyrenees. It's an extraordinary story, and joining me now to discuss it is former detective constable for Greater Manchester Police, Maggie Oliver. And, of course, uh, Maggie runs her own very, very worth, worthwhile trust looking after young women in this country. Maggie, uh, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. I mean, this is one of those stories that's got a very happy ending, but um, an extraordinary story, really, because I don't think anybody really knew that, one, this boy was missing, um, and, yeah. two... Um, what had actually, I don't remember anything being written about this before. No, uh, good evening, Mike. You know what, Mike? I don't either. Um, I've never even heard about this, even though I don't live far from Oldham. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things it shows is just how, um, I guess, fickle the media is. Because if you look at what happened to Madeleine McCann, yeah. everybody in the world knows who she is. Yeah. And yet this little boy went missing um, and, you know, nobody's heard anything about it. Yeah. Um, I think it, it raises 
a lot of questions about, you know, the impact of a, a family breakup. Mm. I don't know a great deal about this story, Mike. I've never heard of it until today. But I think the thing that, you know, struck me straight away was the impact on, on this now a young man, um, you know, dragged away from his country from his grandma, who apparently had custody of the little boy. Um, that, that raises questions for me about why his mum didn't have custody, you know, why she abducted him with the grandfather. And and I guess the, the consequences of, of this abduction and, and wherever he's been living on, on the lad himself, because he will have been struggling with, I would imagine, all kinds of things, you know, guilt and anxiety and the, the lifelong damage that, mm. that this will leave him, with, leave him with is kind of what what stays in my mind. Um, I think the other thing I'd say, Mike, is that um, I lost my own little granddaughter um, just before she was three. Not not in circumstances like this. She died um, tragically of um, a life-limiting condition. But, you know, the consequences of that and the impact on our family um, has never left us. But we had answers. You know, we knew that Macy was gone. The, the, the grandma that clearly was his uh, primary carer, she had parental responsibility. You know, she's not known where this, um, where Alex has been for the past six years. And, you know, the thoughts and the concerns that she must have had to live with, knowing not knowing whether he was alive or dead or missing or, you know, what had happened. Mm. Um, so I would imagine today she is um, over the moon that he is alive and it, it would seem that he'll be coming home. Yes, it looks as though he is going to come home. I think they're making arrangements for that um, as well because he was able to flee, I guess, the spiritual community. Yeah. He's quoted as saying um, uh, that his mother basically was kidnapped. Um, oh, sorry, his mother was a little crazy and she kidnapped him when he was 12. Um, and I guess it tells you as well that there's an awful lot of people that go missing um, in this country and in lots of other countries. I remember when I lived in America, they used to, you know, have missing children and missing people printed on, on yeah. milk cartons. And it was something ridiculous, like 50,000 people go missing every single year and nobody knows what happens to them. No, I mean, you know, I mean, you you really know me from my job as, um, as an ex-police officer. Yeah. But when I first joined the police, I, I actually was 41. So I was, uh, I was a bit long in the tooth. And <laughs> because I had four kids of my own and I was married... You know, when I first joined, I used to get sent to all the missing from homes. Um, and a vast, you know, a, a lot of those people who go missing, if they, usually when they are adults, mm. many of them are never found. And we had a similar um, system here. We, we have the, the National Missing Persons Helpline. And I was asked with an inspector to review the way we dealt with, with people who went missing mm. from home. And many of them were never found, but we did have a, in the UK, I think this was in about 2000, early 2000s, there was a campaign where we had missing people put on milk carts, uh, milk, milk packets. And, yeah. But many of those who go missing are never found. And, mm. and the reality is, Mike, that if you are an adult and you go missing, um, you know, the police will treat it really fairly low key because as an adult, you are, you are, unless there are suspicious circumstances yeah. around it, you know, you are allowed to go missing. Yeah. Nobody's got any right to know where you are. It's very different, mm. though, with an 11 or a 12-year-old boy. And, you know, from what I can read, um, the police did search for this boy. There was a, a suggestion that he'd gone to Morocco. Yeah. Um, and I guess the question that, that you know, 
went came into my mind when I read about this is, you know, will Madeleine McCann ever come forward? Yeah. Because, you know, we, we don't know, do we? We don't have answers. Um but for this this for this boy, he clearly has run, you know, has left this commune or whatever it was, and that must have taken great courage. Yes. Um but he had memories, I would imagine, of his life back home. Um, if he'd been four or five years old, maybe he wouldn't have. So I'll be really interested to mm. know what the story is behind this. Yes. Um, and I'm sure that will all, you know, come out in the coming weeks, I would think. Mm. Yeah, no, I'm going to look forward to seeing some stories about that as well. Yeah. It's fascinating. Uh, Maggie, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Maggie Oliver there <laughs> from the Malik Maggie Oliver Foundation, uh, we should say, uh, which supports survivors of child sexual abuse and exploitation. There are so many missing people that never, ever return. Um, that you never know what's going to happen. My, um, I was at one of those uh, theme parks with my kids once and uh, they were a bit older than uh, one of them was there with his mates and they all disappeared at one point. Nobody knew where they were, couldn't get hold of them on the phone. I went to the organisers at the park and I said, you know, can you put out some kind of message uh, for the kids to come and meet us at some particular meeting point? And they said, how old are they? And I said, well, about 14, 15. Oh, no, uh, if, they're, if they're under 12, we'll do it. But if they're over, over 12, then we don't do it. I'm like, right, OK, then. I'll just have to hope that they turn up then. Very good. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, you're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Up next, Kevin Badenoch's war over predators in the trans movement. And if a man said he was taking contraception, would you really trust him? Hold it right there. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here. Uh, I'm going to show you something for a moment here just before we go back to our panel. And it is some rather, what well, I, you wouldn't call it disturbing footage, but this is footage of young women out on the town in Manchester. And it's become the focus of some very interesting investigations because there's a TikTok user who appears to be filming these young women surreptitiously, posting it on TikTok. It's getting millions and millions of views, but it's been described as very creepy. And he's been described as a kind of night crawler because it's very obvious when the women are walking past that they don't appear to see that somebody's filming them, which would suggest that he's filming them in some way without them knowing, which means he must have some kind of hidden camera. But it's a very good quality camera. And he's got this um, nickname on TikTok. He calls himself Walking in China, uh, or at Dina Mimi 59 racking up millions of views on TikTok. It's a very weird thing that he's doing. Um, and we're going to talk about this with the panel in a little while, because technically speaking, I don't think there's anything illegal about it, but it's just a bit weird. I think it's just a bit odd. Uh, but we'll find out uh, from the ladies on the panel in a moment and even the gentlemen, exactly <laughs> what he makes of all that. Um, but lots of you have been getting in touch, so before we do any of that, uh, let's get straight to the phones. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. Let's hear from Brian, uh, who's in Leeds, wants to talk about anti-Semitism. Hi, Brian. Oh, hi, uh, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was going to point out that basically um, the anti-Semitism... That well, I'd say anti-Semitism that I experienced, I experienced about forty years ago at the University right. of Polytechnic. Actually, mm. um, I walked into a uh, the student union one day and saw on the notice board a um, a motion on occupied Palestine, right. and it was written up by a guy who was a student there, a Palestinian student in Sunderland, and who'd written it up because he was the uh, leader of the General Union of Palestinian Students nationally at the time, right. a, guy, a, uh, a guy who's actually interviewed by the BBC quite a bit now, who now I think he heads the Red Crescent in Ramallah. Ah. 
And let me point out, he comes across as very moderate, but this motion was anything but moderate. Mm. It started with all Jews before 1917 may remain in this country. Anybody after 1917, any Jews after 1917, must be repatriated to the countries from where they came. Right. And my mind started thinking, does that mean we've got to open the gates of Auschwitz again for you, mate? Yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? This has been going on for such a long time. Well, it, it, it commenced mainly because after 1967, the Arab countries tended to uh, come to the realisation that they couldn't defeat Israel militarily, so they changed tack. And they adopted a lot of the uh, former communist directives, um, Zionologists, so to speak, of all the sort of tropes that we're hearing today, mm. Uh, things like ethnic cleansing, things like uh, uh, colonialism, things like genocide. These were all investigated by the communists. But they came to a thought after 1967 because the Arab country could not defeat militarily. Mm. So they changed the perspective. Instead of plucky little Israel, it became the Palestinians and now the underdogs. Yes. And ever since then, and particularly now we find particularly in the youngsters, in the left as well, this notion of the underdog status of the Palestinians, and that's it. Yes. The, the, uh, the, uh, you know, there's no further questions asked, basically. No, that's it. no you're absolutely right. They've now become the, 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 the sort of under, under crowd, uh, the people who are done badly to the people who are sort of victimised, and it's all a bit colonial, and so therefore Israel plays the role of the British Empire versus, you know, the poor people in all sorts of other parts of the world that are downtrodden with the sort of jackboot of the empire on top of them. It's absolutely staggering. Um, let's hear from Mark in Nottingham. He wants to talk about the BBC licence fee. Mark. Hi there, Graham. Uh, How are you? A pleasure to be on your show. Very nice to have you. What do you want to say? Do you want to pay the licence fee or not? I would rather the BBC go totally um, independent, have it sold off to mm. a big company yeah. who can get some money into it and then stop this rubbish about them wanting to come round and collect a licence. It's people that are elderly. It's people with mental issues, including dementia. Right. That 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 these people don't want to be hassled at the doorstep by these capita people. Yeah. And the BBC should go totally independent, and the government should sort that out. Yeah. Get rid of the license, and then give people what they want. Yes. Free I think. I think that's a very good idea. Thank you very much indeed. Let's go to Mark Littlewood on that because it's a big story this week, the BBC. Yeah. Once again brought on brought upon us by Gary Lineker. Um, but the issue of the licence fee, they're putting out another 10 quid. Can't go on like this, can it? No, it's, it's absolutely outrageous, Mike, and completely out of date. Look, back in the day, if you were to go back to the 50s, 60s or 70s, you could probably just about marshal an argument for the licence yeah. fee because... Sorry to give you the economic speech here, but uh, TV, from you. TV, TV signals didn't have excludability. Right. So if you were broadcasting a signal to number six, yeah. Acacia Avenue, the people at number seven and number eight could pick it up. Right. This is completely changed. Right. So we should be able to switch off the channels we don't pay for. You know, I pay for some sports channels yeah. at home. If I don't pay the fee, I don't get those sports channels. Yeah. Streaming, you can choose whether to right. buy or not. 
And I think it's absolutely ludicrous in this day and age. It is. That because you own a television set, right. you are obliged to basically support right. a particular channel. And I you mean, should pay them also, even if you're not even watching anything that they do. Yeah, even if you don't like it. Yeah. It's absolutely, I mean, it's money for old rope. And of course, it means that the BBC is then out of sync, really, with its potential customers. Yeah. Because if you've got a captive audience who are legally obliged to yeah. buy your product, you don't really need to listen to that audience. So I think the BBC would improve yeah. if it had to compete properly on a subscription model. Whether you'd privatise it completely, I mean, one idea I had is, you know, you should be able to opt out of the licence mm. fee, but those who choose to pay it could kind of be members of the BBC. Yeah. Then they could elect their own board, by the way. They not could. being appointed by politicians. Make it a cooperative. Why yeah, not? make it a cooperative. That would be great. They should all so, be happy with that since they're all socialists. No, you know, quite. So this, the, I mean, there's so many ways you could change this, and it, yeah. it is ludicrous. And certainly when I speak to, you know, most people in other countries, they just find it absolutely crazy. Hilarious. That you would still... And if we're going to have a, 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 a state-licensed-supported TV station, what next? State-run yeah. newspaper? I mean, should we have one? Well, that would be Keir Starmer. Starmer would go for that, I'm sure. We'll come back to this in a moment, because I want to talk about Facebook now, because that's being accused of becoming uh, a paedophile's playground by the National Crime Agency. Uh, they've said uh, that parents should think very carefully about letting their kids use the app after encrypted messaging was introduced, which enables paedophiles to groom children and share sexual images undetected. The panel's back here, of course. You've just been hearing from Mark Littlewood from the IEA. This will commentator Alice Grant, writer and broadcaster uh, Candice Holdsworth. I mean, we talked a little bit about this last night because it broke... Uh, in the Times, I think, last night, this Facebook story. I'm going to ask you, Alice, without prejudice, because you're the youngest person here, I mean, do you even use Facebook at this point? Mike, I don't, actually. No. <laughs> no. I don't think, I, I I'm don't much think about under Instagram. the age of about 30 wears, uh, uses Facebook at all, do they? Yeah, but um, your viewers can follow me on my Instagram, <laughs> at Miss Alice Grant, <laughs> and on Twitter. Yeah. But no, I don't really use Facebook. Um, for some university group chats, I find it useful. I'm part yeah. of a few editorial teams. So, um, But apart from that, I, I, I wouldn't use Facebook. I think it's grown out of hand. I don't trust Mark Zuckerberg either. No. Not one bit. No. Um, I know he's responsible for other social media patterns too, but I think... No, I wouldn't. And I would definitely warn any and caution any parents yeah. of, of letting their children use those I mean, they kind of types of social media. I mean, they should about whatever they use. I mean, we just looked at yeah. that TikTok uh, thing. We might as well talk about that as well over here. You know, that yeah. TikTok weird Nightcrawler character who's supposedly filming different scenes in different cities around Europe, but yeah. most of it seems to be Manchester, and almost That's all of awful. it is exclusively young women, yeah. you know, going out on the town, you know, dressing up for it and not wearing very many clothes. But it's a very odd thing to film, isn't it? It's very intrusive. I knew someone a few years ago at a fashion blog site. It was actually based around such a nasty comment. She used to take surreptitious pictures of people she thought were dressed badly. Oh, really? And then would write a big, long critique about them. It was just a hate blog. Right. Basically, yes. and it was just, just random people. Just random people who right. she thought yeah. looked awful. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, what a horrible idea. I mean, yeah. it's like that sort of similar thing. It's almost predatory. Yeah. yeah. You know, looking out for people and... Well, as I said, it's one yeah. thing if they knew it was happening and if you knew you were being filmed yeah. and they might even have had a few drinks and they might be, be funny about it. Yes. But they clearly don't know they're being filmed. No. Which means the camera must be obscured somewhere or must be, you know, secreted somewhere. Well, maybe it's it not so illegal, though. I think it. it. No, it's not no, it's illegal, not. isn't it? It's quite, it's quite a tricky one. Well, it's an open... It it's, it's, it's a public place. Yeah. It's a bit like we used to have these <laughs> arguments place, when I was in Fleet Street about what, you know, pictures could be taken by paparazzi. Yeah. And certainly in America, they're very, pu they're very pure on that, very fundamentalist. They're like, if you're on a public street, if you're in a public place, anyone can take a picture of you. Sure. You've got no privacy there. But no, that's and right. That's and sometimes, right. sometimes, sometimes in private spaces as mm. well, right? I mean, if you, a lot of people might not know this, but if you buy a, a ticket to go to a football match, mm. part of the condition of that ticket is you don't object to being right. picked up by TV cameras. Yes. And, you know, they sometimes focus in on 
rather good-looking younger women, yeah. you don't notice the TV cameras. So yeah. that's part of the condition of buying the ticket. Yeah. So we've got to make a decision about who we think, you know, do people own their own image when they're walking up and down the street? Mm. Or if you're walking up and down the street, can people freely film you? I don't yeah. think you even it, notice it anymore, though. Phones are just out all yeah. the time. And actually, but there is a point to make here about the state slowly encroaching on this kind of intrusivity. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, there's been lots of talk recently about these digital cameras that are being put everywhere that sort of have these facial recognition mm. technologies. Yeah. And I think it sounds very scary, but on the subject of that video, well, I find that such uncomfortable yeah, viewing for so many reasons, nice. but also the fact that it clearly comes from a place of some grimy, like, yeah. pervert who's yeah. taking videos of these young women uh, you know, uploading them on social media, it's so just it's disgusting. And it's just very, very Very strange. awful. But yeah. talking about the issues of trust, um, let's talk about the male um, pill, which is apparently being turned oh, around. No. Uh, there's going to be one produced. I think they're going to try it <laughs> on a few men at some point in the next few the months and possibly... The are next these men year. picked at random? Or do I they don't know. I think, I think it's a trial. <laughs> right, I think it's a trial right. they're doing. Believe it or not, you know, the younger generation, and I, I don't count you in it, I'm afraid, Mark. No, no, uh, no. The younger generation of men, very keen on this, right. you know, and I think if you ask a lot of older guys, they'll be like, must be joking. So, Daphne know, dating no an older man. Any kind of, you know, contraceptive pill. And a lot of guys in their 20s who they're asking about it going, yeah, well, why shouldn't we share the responsibility? But would you really trust a bloke who said that he was on the pill? I think that's the problem, isn't it? No. That's the I mean, we just trust the bloke, period, I suppose. Exactly. <laughs> I was thinking my, my answer not. to that is no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting, though, that they were saying that with this male contraceptive, they're looking at things that don't necessarily interfere with the hormones as much because I think the female contraceptive pill has come under criticism lately. Yeah. A lot of women don't want to take it now because I think A lot it's of women really struggle think, these, taking it, don't these, they? These yeah. sort of medical, like highly intrusive, I mean, when you're talking about literally changing your hormones, tricking your body into thinking you're pregnant, yeah. I think that is one of the most, like, really, you know, sincerely strong um, medical proced like procedures you can do. Yeah. Honestly, incursions it, into your... It is, it's really horrible. And mm. the fact that this medical... Um, stuff hasn't been trialed enough. Mm. And then lots of young women in my generation have suffered a lot from this. Mm. I think it's really irresponsible of GPs to be just recommending it to right. young women just off the bat. And the fact that the big pharma is obviously, you know, the one that's profiting from yeah. this. I, I mean, there are horrible. now many yeah. different methods of contraception, yeah. aren't there? Yeah. But you don't have to take the pill. But no. I mean, um, and probably it's less used now than probably it ever was. But, but will the... So the, I don't know much about this male pill. Is it likely to change... Anybody's mood if they're um... well, I think it's it's focused on re reducing sperm count, right? And I think they found a way of doing it that is yeah, quite reliable. Like a great idea. Awful. <laughs> so one thing that I raised my eyebrows at. I was reading the article about it, and the person who's developing it, she said that um, I think it was condoms aren't that reliable. Not she didn't say they aren't that reliable, but they're less effective right. at, at preventing Ooh. pregnancy. And I thought they're very effective. Yeah. That's not true. It's well, like ninety-eight yeah. percent effective right. at preventing yeah, pregnancy. That's still two percent, though, right? That's, uh... But it's still with the pill. You'll still yeah. get that. Fair, fair. I mean, nothing's a hundred percent. And I just thought, well, I mean, I suppose you have an interest in saying right. that. I thought we had a falling birth rate in this country, by the way. I thought the idea was that, uh, like Kim Jong Un, we should be encouraging people to have more children, shouldn't we? Yeah, that's probably that's probably. <laughs> or not, maybe. Okay, well, I'm oh, a I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. So. What's the what, what is the, what's the birth rate? It's about one point six per woman. Yeah, is it? so it's, so. It well, is I mean, this is one of the arguments that gets made all the time about immigration that we need immigration because we've got a falling birth sure. rate, um, well, I which think I'm that, not buying, yeah. by the way.
The issue is, is that the state has become so anti-family, mm. um, you know, across recent decades. It's so incredibly hard right now to, to, to have a family, right. to be able to afford to, to upkeep children and to, and to help them. And I think as a young person, that's a real struggle and a real concern for me in the future. Yeah. And I know for so many others as well. Yeah. Because you know what, I think the family is the most important unit in our society. And at the moment you have, you know, terrible effects from from divorce being, you know, so easy. To, and like, so, you know, a lot of crime rates have soared because of broken families in Britain and nothing family. is being done. Also, there's no, t there used to be a tax incentive, didn't there, Mark, for, yep. for married couples, which kind of has disappeared. And a exactly. lot of people say to me that, you know, they're thinking about having children, but they can't afford it. Yep. And the only people that have children who can't afford it don't care because they'll just get more benefits. No, that's right. I mean, I kind of want a, a level playing field here. I'm not, I'm not mm. sure I want the state to particularly favour one type of family formation. But if anything, the state discriminates against the family, right? Yes. Yeah. Imagine that you were a couple who were living in different properties and you both got housing benefit. Yeah. The, not much of incentive to move in together under one no. roof, right? No. Uh, and then we have a lot of government policies uh, or interventions that, uh, as you were saying, Alice, make the, the problem, I mean, insurmountable for young people. Property yeah. prices are so high yeah. because we've got such daft planning restrictions. Mm. If you can't afford to put a roof over your head, yeah. Uh, or you can only rent a matchbox, yeah. you're pretty unlikely to start a family, right? Yeah. So all of these things, which are kind of upstream, I think are really what's preventing yeah. family and formation and rather than the wider access to contraception. Right. Yes. Yeah. And the idea that this can't be held. I mean, you have countries like Hungary, um, you know, even across Europe, places like Italy, where there's such a pro-family, um, you know, polic policies. And I just feel like... Why can't we have that in this country? Well, you know, no, it's really no. Because I'm at that stage now where everyone's having babies, yeah. and I've had two, and most people just seem to want to stop at two. I don't even know if it's economic. Well, that's another thing that you know is now very much part of the modern process of, of family life is that very few people now have more than two children. Yes. I mean, my my two parents both came from families of about seven. Mm -hmm. wow. But, you know, that was because they were not particularly well off and, and in those days you had more children because they made more money yeah. and you could send them out to work. You know, that was literally <laughs> what they were for. Yeah. You know, so they did it on a lot less. But you'll, but you'll find that, Mike. I mean, generally, historically, as countries get richer, the birth rate drops. Yeah. Now, you obviously don't want it to drop to zero, no. right? But, but generally speaking, mm. you'll find it's in poorer countries. And in countries in Africa that have improved a lot over the past, you know, 20, 30 years, yeah. the birth rate's dropping. So I don't think we should necessarily aspire to a world in which sort of every woman has seven kids. And it's not no. just they would work. No, I don't it's also so infant mortality yeah. is so high yeah. uh, in, in so sure. many areas that, you know, you might right. need three Listen, or four Britain's kids. Listen, enough. I think people should Britain have the crowded freedom, enough, though. Trust me. Yeah. No, I, do, I disagree with that. I think this is about individual sovereignty. Yeah. If I want to have my seven kids, why shouldn't I? No, incentivize you to do that. That's your lifestyle choice. Right? Well, actually, right now, it's so biased against that. No, I agree. It should be biased against that we've, it or we've in favour of it. in at such an extreme way. It's almost, you know, now... We should be neutral if, about it. It should be your choice. I do. I think I think family should be encouraged. So. It's the most important yeah. thing in life. Well, I didn't think this was going to be the route we were going to have. So. There we are. Uh, listen, uh, we're going to look at some of the stories in the papers coming up. You're watching The Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham. Up next, we're going to find out what the Aviva bigwig tells us about why she's vetting straight white men will apply to work for her. Uh, and we'll have more, as I said, from the papers. Do not go anywhere. Welcome back. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for this. The World of Work. 
Everyone knows we've got a recruitment crisis in this country. We're forever being told that we must have mass immigration because we simply won't have enough people to do all the jobs that need doing. The truth is, of course, uh, that we have millions of people in this country who do not work at all, sometimes because they're not able to, but mostly because they don't want to. So you might think that the biggest companies in Britain would be full square behind training up more people and casting a net as wide as possible to find the best candidates for every job. You would think so. It would be wrong. You'd be wrong because particularly when it comes to one of the biggest financial services companies in the land. Yes, I'm afraid the boss at Aviva doesn't share your view. Amanda Blank, the chief executive, says that no one can hire any white males without her giving it the thumbs up personally. Ms Blank, the first female chief executive in the company, appeared in front of a parliamentary committee and told them proudly, there are no non-diverse hires at Aviva without it being signed off by me and the chief people officer. Chief people officer? What on earth is that? There are 22,000 people at Aviva and Ms Blank, whose name ironically translates from the French as Ms White, has made it clear that she wants to make sure no one is hired just because they're mates with someone who's already there. She claims she's inspired by all the sexism she's heard in the workplace during her time in the financial business. Being told she wasn't the right man for the job has apparently had a lasting effect on her. Wouldn't it just be simpler to hire the best person for the job? For heaven's sake, that is the world of work. The world of work. Now let's get back to the panel. A lot of people saying they're going to cancel their insurance with Aviva because of this, because of this dopey woman saying, you know, you can't hire any white. And also, how That's is surprising, isn't it? How is not hiring white men any good for sexism? Yeah. You know, are black men not sexist? I mean, are you know men who <laughs> might be from different ethnic persuasions not sexist? They're still men. I'll tell you what's even weirder about this whole thing. I mean, Martin Luther King must be spinning in his grave. Yeah. He's, you know, we should judge people by the content of their character. Exactly. Not the colour of their skin, exactly. not their gender, not right. their height, not their width. It's unbelievable. It's just yet another. We're going to pigeonhole people in yeah. boxes. We've got to have more of this type, less of that type. I find it, there's all of this identity politics to be the most yeah. anti-individualistic, anti-meritocratic. You can kind of laugh at it. But it's pretty but it's pernicious. It's serious. I mean, that's discriminatory. I mean, I've got two teenage sons, right, um, who are 19 and 16. You know, I worry that when they start looking for jobs, that they're going to be not allowed to get certain jobs because they're not the right colour. Yeah. No, I don't think so. I think I think it's slightly overblown. I mean, as you said, there are 22,000 people who work for Aviva. Is this lady really going to go through every single application? I think it's virtue signalling. And, you know, don't worry, finance is very much filled with... With with men, so I think actually at the moment um, we could use a bit of a bit of more women in those areas. Maybe, but Maybe. I think as you said, meritocracy is meritocracy, the most important yeah. thing. Yeah. And if you work hard, you should get the job. If I mean, you're good enough for the job, this panel is made you should up get two the women job. One man. Yeah, 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 I'm outnumbered. It should time, be yeah. about competency. There's no sexism here. <laughs> um, let's get <laughs> on to the you, really Mike. important story of the night: <laughs> the Great Yorkshire Pudding Debate. Front page of the Daily Mirror. Should you have it with your Christmas dinner or not? Now. None of you are from Yorkshire, so I suppose we can all... Actually, well, my, my grandma's name. from Yorkshire. Is your grandma from Yorkshire? Yeah. OK, so, well, in that case, is, <laughs> there, is there a code on what things you can put Yorkshire pudding with? So my grandma makes the best Yorkshire pudding. OK. I, um, but I wouldn't have it for Christmas. I've also been watching Mary Berry's Christmas yeah. specials, so I'm going to kind of follow her lead, and right. I don't think she includes it, so... I think you can only have yeah. Yorkshire pudding really with roast beef. Yeah, I would example. say so. For right. Sunday roast... Definitely Yorkshire pudding for Christmas. Yeah, but not if it's lamb, though. Yeah. See, I, 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 I don't like having Yorkshire pudding unless I'm having beef. Oh, interesting. I don't, I don't know Goes best with beef. Goes OK roast. with turkey, right? <laughs> Goes OK with well, turkey. Well, I mean, it's nice. I mean, it's like, yeah. no, no, nobody's going to say you shouldn't eat it because it's not, it doesn't taste good. It tastes great. 
I remember when the pubs used to do those great big Yorkshire puddings. Massive, tons of gravy in the middle. In the middle. Yeah, yeah. And you just eat, it's yeah. eat out of the Yorkshire pudding. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could do that as well. I just I just think it's not a Christmas thing. Yeah, I've never I mean, had There's enough Christmas. to eat at Christmas. You don't have to have yeah, Christmas. Yeah, exactly. Yes, pudding case as well. of blankets. Turkey. We do. Because we're going yeah. to my mum's this year. Okay. Christmas, Christmas dinner. And she's very northern. So I think we are going to have Yorkshire pudding okay. with lots of gravy. All right. I think oh, so. Well, well when, 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 when we come back after the new year. <laughs> yes, give us some update. <laughs> I, I leave England every year at Christmas. He's going so to I'm Tenerife. probably yearning for some traditional English yes. grub because you never get it out in Tenerife no, or no. Las Vegas or wherever else I go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Is it hot in Las Vegas for Christmas? No, it's kind of coolish. Oh, is it? But, yeah, but you can't get this you can't get this gorgeous English food out. Yeah. There. So maybe exactly. it's just that I'm salivating for yeah. it already, knowing yeah. I won't be having it on it Christmas. We used to have barbecues when yeah. we were in Johannesburg yeah. in the Southern Same Hemisphere. in Sydney, right? They have they have, you have Christmas on the beach. Yeah. I don't think um, big story in the Telegraph about Tony Blair. We talked about him earlier. Uh, he took a million pound donation to ban fox hunting, um, according to Lord Mandelson. Apparently, uh, he took it from an animal rights group. Rather an interesting mm. uh, yeah. historical uh, allegation to make, isn't it? That's yeah. He didn't bit. identify the group involved, um, but he said the animal rights campaigner Brian Davis, who founded the International Fund for Animal oh, Welfare. Yeah. Gave the party a million quid. Mm, this, this is tricky, really, isn't it? Really because you never you never know on these things. Yeah. Well, what's the cause and what's the effect? Yes. Right. So, you, did Tony Blair go and ban fox hunting because of this money? Well, that would be absolutely appalling. Yeah. But if Tony Blair was minded to ban fox hunting, then you might presume that people who support the banning of fox hunting are more likely to give the yes. Labour Party money. I'm yes. not sure. Well, you've got to be quite clear which the cause and effect is. It's not clear from this story mm. which way round it is, but. We were talking at the, you know, a little while ago at the top of the show about this Tory MP who's got into trouble for yes. sort of, you know, well, you know, a million pounds yeah. donation to a party. But you know, so my it's basic starting point is parties will raise money from people who agree with them, yeah. right? And but therefore you shouldn't be surprised. Business, but you can't run a party based on donations if you if you if you have so many limits on donations you can't take any. Yeah. I'm just I mean, thinking because nobody yeah. gives you money for nothing, do they? No. At the end of the day. What well, you'd hope animal... they give you money because they agree with you. You'd right. hope. Yeah. Yeah. So what is an animal rights group doing, giving a million pounds in donation mm. to Labour? That's a joke. Well, I it's mean, a bit like Dale Vince. You know, Dale Vince, who now admits to giving yeah. money to Labour, has now stopped giving money to Just Stop Oil. Uh, he's the guy that runs electricity. Yeah. Uh, because he doesn't agree with their methods. Oh, really? But he, but he still gives money to, to the Labour Party, and so the Labour Party will eventually, whether they like it or not, have to sort of bend to his will uh, that net zero is absolutely what they no, have to go exactly. for. That's what we, we're, we're witnessing a politics which is basically based on bribery, yeah. which is so worrying because where is debate in this? You know, it's the same with COVID when we saw the hysteria about vaccines yeah. and lockdowns and stuff. Where is the debate? Where is the deliberation? It's all about you know, who's funding who yeah. and who's going to benefit and profit from this. where's the money coming from? Exactly. exactly right. It's... Speaking of money, yeah. uh, I see the Times has got a story about the NHS waiting list falling. Um, Sunak says he's going to call off the doctor's strike. The doctor's strike is literally a two-week strike. Yep. Even though they're claiming it's only three days and seven days, it really is two weeks. It starts next week on the 20th. Yeah. Absolutely cynical of the British Medical Association. Yes. It's time to do it. it I mean, how far have they fallen, though? Well, yeah, it's just terrible. Do we believe it? it? I mean, I mean, the waiting. This is the supposedly good news, Mike. That the waiting list is down from 7.77 million to 7.71 million. <laughs> right? This is the great news. Yeah. Right. This is what uh, I, I mean. mean this, this is, is a similar to being 11th in the mathematical. Yeah, no, this is. <laughs> 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 well done, Rishi. 
also, I mean, can you, it's just beggar's belief, in a rich country like the UK, you've got the best part of 8 million yeah. people in a queue. Right. And that's actually not even half of it, because there's another 10 million further beyond them who have had one operation and are waiting for a second yep. one. So there's actually 18 million now. And there'd um, be loads basically. of people who've gone private because yeah. they know this is how bad they yeah. do. I mean, this system is just completely broken, it the is NHS. Broken. We've yeah. got to have a serious discussion about how we can provide healthcare to everybody in this country through a different yeah. system. And it's uh, the NHS, they used to say, was uh, Britain's religion. But yeah. I think we're starting to fall out of love with it. Dueling out crown. I think that's happened. But under Labour, though, I mean, do you think it could start becoming, the debate could become no. restricted like that again? It will be, because the problem with Labour is strikes always get worse because the unions think they'll get more out of Labour than they'll get out of the Tories. So they'll go yeah. and strike more. Uh, they'll demand more. They'll change nothing because they never did. Yeah. You know, yeah. All Blair did was saddle them with a load of debt when he went for all the PFI initiatives to build yeah. hospitals. Yeah. So it's an absolute disaster. Mm. Um, let's go to chores after school can boost health. Apparently a study led by the University of Exeter says that if you just sit around watching television or scrolling on your phone, your children are going to risk dying of a heart attack. It's a bit grim, isn't it? The kids don't get chores and anymore. Strokes. Oh, we well, always used to have chores after school. We always really? had things what sort we had of chores to do. Did they make you do? Well, it's just like washing dishes, yeah. like walking dogs. <laughs> yeah. you know that sort of thing. Yeah, picking up leaves in the garden. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mowing the lawn. My kids won't do anything unless I pay them. But no. they, 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 found, they found alternative methods of making money. They, they won't even take the money now. Oh. It's not enough. You go, give me 10 quid to wash the car. It's not enough. But, Mike, what I'm trying to work out here in this study, this in this piece in The Times, is, all right, yeah, I, I get that kids sitting around, it's bad for them, but just sitting around watching television or scrolling on their phones, uh, you might get a heart attack or a stroke. Why does this only apply to kids? Yeah. I'm in my early 50s. I basically spend most of my life watching television right. and scrolling through my phone. phone. I reckon yeah. I'm at more risk of a heart attack or a stroke than well those be. kids who it's aren't doing the watching up. I think right? yeah. you know. obviously leading by example. <laughs> yeah. Cut out the middle man. Yeah. Um, what about a blow for uh, feminism on the back page of the mirror? First Lady, uh, Rebecca Welsh, shouldn't really be a, a, a story, this, should it? <laughs> Rebecca Welsh yeah. will make history by becoming the first female referee to take charge of a Premier League game. Yeah. Well, well I can't do? check. I mean, <laughs> good luck to her. But it goes back to what we were saying about Aviva just a minute yeah. ago, doesn't it? I, I don't really care whether you're male, female, no. tall, short, black, white. Are you a good referee? If so, go and referee. But there'll be loads matches. of debate about this because, of course, the people who don't think it's right that a woman should referee the game will say things like what Jerry Barton was saying. You know, they don't really understand what the, the pressures are. Um, they don't really, they don't want to hear terrible language, you know, that gets shouted at them by the players and how, what's going to happen if the players run up to them and start berating them. The it's players will be more respectful. Awkward. That's a good thing. Well, maybe they will, but they shouldn't I hope be. they though. are. They should, they should <laughs> be. Exactly should they? The same, they shouldn't treat her any differently. I mean, yeah. if... I if disagree. Some... I think you can maintain, like, good civil standards whilst also being a woman in a high-powered position. We're talking footballers should treat men, the ref the same, Men get right? very defensive about their sports. I understand. But actually, I agree with you with the fact that it's a bit cringe to have us on the first page. I think, you know, I, listen, I, let's I judge think her by her referee work. Don't mind. I always feel profoundly unqualified because I don't watch football to have yeah. strong opinions on this. Yes. You are a woman, though. <laughs> yeah. At least, I hope you are. I'm just, I could just kind of go, yay! Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, anyway, it's been great. Girl we, haven't, we haven't really got time to do any. It's a lovely picture of a load of Christmas trees in Glasgow, but we can't really show you that. Uh, but thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, that's all from me tonight. You've been watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Uh, thank you to Candice. Uh, thank you to Alice. Thank you to Mark. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow for Plank of the Week. We didn't play the clip again, uh, but that's at seven tomorrow, uh, only on Talk TV. We'll be back with the Independent Republic on Monday. <laughs>